0: Thank you for tuning in to Stepping Stones of Faith. Stepping Stones of Faith is a ministry of Claytonville United Brethren Church. Our service times are as follows. Sunday morning Sunday school starts at 9.30 a.m. Sunday morning worship starts at 10.30 a.m. If you would like to join us for any of these services, our address is 106 Elizabeth Street, Claytonville, Illinois, 60926. We hope to see you this morning. God is good. Amen. Even in the midst of our trials and tests and losses and and rejoicing, God is good. So turn with me, if you will. We're continuing in our study of the minor prophets. If you're in the Red Bible, turn with me to Haggai, right after where we were last time. Zephaniah, one page over. Haggai, if you're in the Red Bible, there. And we will continue, we'll start with chapter one today. Start with the introduction of this book. Haggai, written in approximately 520 B.C. by the prophet Haggai, the theme of this book is the rebuilding of the temple. Haggai, a contemporary of Zechariah, was one of the first post-captivity prophets his ministry was to rebuke the returned exiles for their delay in rebuilding the temple as well as to encourage them to begin working to consecrate the sacrificial system. The five messages that make up the book are unique in that they are precisely dated. The year, month, and the day are specifically based on the reign of the Persian king Darius. Darius. This small book can be divided according to the, to the five messages, two of rebuke and three of encouragement. Haggai prophesied that the glory of the restored temple would prosper the land and provide for the final overthrow of the surrounding nations. So, as we go into this here, starting in verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Now... In the second year of Darius, the prophecy of Haggai gives us several specific chronological marking points. Here we learn that the prophecy began on September, in September of 520 B.C. So, we're in September. So, 520 B.C. in September was when this began. It makes Haggai the first among the most powerful exilic minor prophets of the 12 minor prophets the first nine spoke before Judah and it was carried away captive exiled to Babylon. The last three minor prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi each spoke to those who returned from the 70 year exile. Now, giving you a little bit of a background of the 12 prophets. So what we've done so far has been uh, pre-exilic or when they were in exile to Babylon. But we've talked about so far, the, the books we've done, gone through so far. This is the beginning of <clears throat> the ones where the post-exilic. Uh, the commentator Boyce says, Gone was the glory of the former kingdom of, uh, and temple. Gone was the great population. All that was left was the rubble of Jerusalem, the remnant of the people and the task of restoration. So they came back out of captivity and they waited some time to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. And now Haggai is going to rebuke them and then restore them with an encouragement. In 538 B.C., King Cyrus Cyrus, king of Persia, allowed the exiled Jews to return to Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity. Two years later, in 536 B.C., construction of the temple began, led by Zerubbabel. The work stopped after two years, 534 B.C. After 14 years of neglect, worked on the temple resumed in 520 B.C. and was finished four years later in 516 B.C. We see that in Ezra 6.15. So there's a lot of, this, is, this book is very specific with dates. And so we've got to be very specific in our, in our research here of how this went down. So this is going to get kind of dry probably, but it is very important to the history of the church and the history of the, of the Jewish people. He goes on and he says, Charles Spurgeon says, We notice the dates are reckoned by a pagan king because "because there was at that time no king over Israel, yet the date was still important to God. There is a set time for each of his messages to come to men, and God would have them give heed to every message as soon as it is delivered to them. If they do not keep, if they do not, he keeps count of the days of their delay. Now, God keeps track, amen. In the difficult years of the return of the exile, God spoke to his people through the prophet Haggai. Haggai is also mentioned twice in the book of Ezra, the priest who oversaw the work of rebuilding the temple. So Ezra was a, was on the same time as Haggai, and he oversaw the rebuilding of the temple. Ezra 5, 1 and 2 says this, Then the prophet Haggai and, and Zechariah, the son of Ed- Edo, prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem. In the name of the God of Israel, who was over them so Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel and Jeshua the son of uh, the son of Jozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God which is in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them helping them Ezra 5 1 and 2 verses uh, Ezra 614 says so elders of the Jews built and they, pro- and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and, Ze- and Zechariah, the son of Edo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the, of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Xerxes, king of Persia. So Ezra was a contemporary or part of this rebuilding of the temple. The name Haggai is probably abbreviated from the phrase Festival of Yahweh. Some speculate that he was born on the day of the major feast in Israel. Now, Haggai's background. All right. So, Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Haggai gave the first word in September 520 BC. At that time, the exiles had been back in Jerusalem for 18 years, but the work of rebuilding the temple had laid idle for the last 14 years. We go back to Ezra. Ezra chapter 3, 10 and 11 says this, The work started gloriously. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Aspha, with symbols to praise the Lord, according to the ordinance of David, David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good his mercies endure forever toward Israel then all the people shouted with great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid Ezra 3:10 and 11 This people says God's people the citizens of Jerusalem told them that it wasn't yet time to resume work in the temple. There were some good reasons why they might say this and why the work was re- work of rebuilding the temple was hard. some things. The land was still desolate after 70 years of neglect. so they were gone they were out of the land for 70 years. That's part of it. Another part the work was the work was hard. Hard work you ever have that where work is hard and you kind of just you just kind of just put it off put it off well next week or tomorrow or next month they put it off for 14 years they didn't have a lot of money or manpower that could have been a reason they suffered crop failures and drought hostile enemies resisted the work okay They remembered easier times in Babylon. That is a big thing with the children of Israel. If you remember in the book of Exodus, when they were wandering around the desert, the children of Israel, some of them were remembering better days in Egypt. At least then we had three meals a day. At least then we had food. At least then we had this. At least then we had that. They were remembering all of those things. Some of them probably were. So, things that we do, things that we say, we make excuses for ourselves, don't we? They may have said the time has not come because they thought that the 70 years of captivity mentioned in Jeremiah 25 11 through 13 and 29 10 had not yet been fulfilled according to Usher's chronology of these events. They were in the 69th year since the last siege of Jerusalem. Even in this, the people of God lacked faith. There were three waves of captivity, 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and 587 B.C. In Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9, he was bold enough to ask God to take the earliest starting point to determine the 70 years, and God did. Unbelief made these returned captives think that God's mercy might not come to Israel until 18 years later. So, the time has not yet come because they didn't believe the prophecy had been fulfilled yet. Sometimes we think we kind of do that, don't we, when we uh, try to do what God wants us to do? Well, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. This hasn't happened yet. This We haven't done this yet. So therefore, we don't, we don't need to be doing it yet. Well, God would have us to understand that we need to do it when He says to do it. They started for four years they worked and they let it lay for 14, neglected. Verses 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, "This is—is is it time for you? Hag, is it time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts: Consider your ways. Now, we must consider our ways." We must consider the house of God, right? We have a church here, a lot of churches, there's a lot of buildings and churches, and the understanding is, at least that we should understand in ourselves is that we are the church, not the building. Um, we We are the body of Christ, we are the body of the Lord, we are to do the ministry. The church, the building doesn't do any ministry. The people do the ministry, but, but it is a place to to congregate, to come together and worship God. Now, does that mean because we're the church, we should go ahead and let the church building be in ruins? Because by, after all, that's not the church; we're the church. Well, there, there's an old principle um, that I learned. That we we all probably learned, you know the the outside of the building indicates the, ins, the, the the people that are inside, whether that's in at a house, at a business, whatever. If you have a house and you don't take care of your lawn, or you don't you know take care of your property right, then people are think like, well they must be lazy. Look at their property; they're not they don't really care about it. Well that says a lot about the individuals inside. Even if it might not be the case, but people come to conclusions. And sometimes those conclusions are wrong, sometimes they're correct. But if we look at the outward of the building, the inward, it tells a lot about the inward. Okay? And we, can, we can say that about the individual. If we look at a lot of the outside, sometimes it says a lot about the inside. If somebody is a person who swears and does all kinds of things that are against God in the outward, that tells a lot about what the heart is on the inside. Their heart is far from God. Therefore, that's a manifestation of the heart being afar from God, what's happening on the outward. So, the house of God is important. We are the house of God. Our, our bodies... How is the Spirit of God. So therefore, it is important for us as individuals to take care of our bodies and then take care of our property. Now, going on, verses 5 and following down. 5 and 6. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put them into a bag of holes. Bag with holes. Now, they're not satisfied. The Hebrew figure of speech for this phrase, consider your ways, is literally to put your heart on your roads. Put your heart on your roads. Haggai asks God's people to consider what direction their life was headed and if they really wanted to continue that way. Consider your ways. Think about what you're doing. Are you going down the right path? Are you walking in the ways of God? Consider your ways. And if you're not, then things need to change. Things need to turn around. You need to consider it. We say that a lot when we think about people, you know, people that don't act right. They They need to think about what they're doing. And you think about how they're living. That's another way of saying, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. The cause of their financial difficulties was their wrong priorities. They suffered setback after setback because the blessing of God wasn't on their pocketbook. Wrong decisions. Consider your ways. When you're going down a wrong path, Followed by, that, followed by that wrong path or a manifestation of walking down that wrong path is bad decisions. Financial bad decisions, uh, relationship bad decisions, bad decisions. So this, this thought pattern transcends time and it can be applied, applied today. Consider our ways. Are we walking down the right path? Are we walking with God? And a lot of what we can understand of that is uh, we just look at what we're doing. We're honest with ourselves, right? So we know whether we're walking with God or not. And that will manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Haggai describes a double curse. Instead of much, little was reaped. And the little that was brought home melted away without doing any good. I do not know of any passage in the Bible that better describes the feverish yet ineffective activity of our own age. That's correct. There are people in this world, some of us might be thinking of someone, who when they get money that burns a hole in their pocket, And they blow it and have nothing to show for it, nothing to show for it whatsoever. That happens today. That's earning wages to put it into a bag with holes. It just goes one into your pocket and goes out of your pocket. These judgments were fulfilled and were a fulfillment of promises. God made hundreds of years before in the time of Moses in Deuteronomy eleven sixteen and 17. The people of Israel were being judged, and they didn't even know it. They probably wrote it all off as bad luck or tough economic times, but God was trying to tell them something. Sometimes our priorities are out of order and we seem to suffer no financial hardship. In such times we should never presume on the mercy of God. We should turn to him and reorder our priorities before he needs to use crisis to get us to get through to us. So, what is that saying to us? What did what did the commentator mean by that particular phrase? We might be doing okay, We might not be following God and following his ways, but look, we've got all the money we need. We've got good relationships. We have we're not in want of anything. So why would we need to turn to God? That's exactly when we need to. When we believe that we don't need God, that's when we need Him the most. We think I don't need God. I have everything I need. I have everything I want. That's when we need to turn to God and say, God, I am weak, but you are strong. God, I am weak, but you are strong. That's something that we must understand. Just because we have everything doesn't mean that God is blessing us if we're walking aside of Him, walking away from Him. God wants us to follow him and the blessings will follow us. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. If our priorities are wrong, nothing will satisfy us. Let me read that again. If our priorities are wrong, nothing will satisfy us. Each accomplishment soon reveals that there must be something more, something that can really that can really satisfy. Nothing fills the God-shaped void in our life except putting Him first. Nothing. If we're if we are not going the right direction, nothing will satisfy us. If you think you need, if you if you want more money, you get more money. You find a way to make it. But then you think, well, I need more money. I need more money, so you make more money and. There's still this this need and desire for something. So you think it's money or you think it's relationships. But it's that empty hole in your heart that is the only place for God. We must remember that. God wants us to fill that empty space with him. Verse seven through 11 Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and rebuild the, rebuild the house that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you will with, you have it withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its crops. I called for a drought on the land and the mountains on uh, and, and the mountains on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what was what the ground brings forth, on men, on livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. So God called for a drought. God called for a drought because they were putting their own wants and desires first. They were not putting God first. They were putting their own wants and desires first. We do that today. You say, well, why do you say we do that today? Because we're human, right? I'm human, at least the last time I looked anyway. I'm not Kryptonian or anything like that, I'm not Superman, but I am human and we are all human and therefore we are subject to a sin nature. So we are adept, very adept as human beings to putting ourselves first, what we want first and sometimes that can get us into a lot of trouble and God will then punish us by withholding his hand on the blessings. In our lives, until we turn to Him and put Him first. Now, understand that God does not want to do this to harm us, He does this to cause us to turn to Him. The Bible says, My people perish for a lack of knowledge. Why would we perish for a lack of knowledge when we have knowledge right here? Self. Why would God give up the people in Romans 1 to the reprobate mind? Self, who are they looking out for? They were looking out for themselves. They were looking out for their own desires, their own needs, their own wants. They weren't putting God first. Why do we perish for lack of knowledge? Because we don't put God first. We put ourselves first, and that's our biggest idol. Our biggest idol is ourselves. Our biggest idol is the one that's looking back at us in the mirror. How many times have we thought to ourselves, well, I don't really want to go to church today. It's too nice. Or I just, just don't feel like getting out of my pajamas. Or I just don't feel like getting out of bed. Or I just don't feel like going today. Is that putting us first or God First, what's the Bible say? The Bible says that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Therefore, we are required by the word of God to congregate together. For what reason? For the reason of encouragement, for the reason of edification. In some cases, for the reason of rebuke. But yet, nevertheless, we are commanded to come together. We are commanded to to walk with God. We are commanded to be in his presence on his day. God called them to work. Sometimes God's cause needs work. Work that is supported by prayer, not work that is neglected because of pretended spiritual service. So this is something we have to look at also. Why do we come to church? Why do we do the work of God? Why do we minister to others? Is it because obligation? Well, the Bible says I have to. The Bible says I have to. So I better do it. Or even even maybe this even I'm going to go to church on Sunday and I'm going to pretend that I'm something that I'm not. When I walk out the door, I'm going to be somebody different. I'm going to think the way I want to think. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to say what I want to say. And I'm not going to, not going to even, for the remotest part of my life, change the way I think. That's pretend spiritual service. That's lip service to God. And you know what? We're not lying to God. We're not hiding anything from God. We're not hiding anything from Him. You might hide stuff from other people, but not from Him. Not from Him. It is. It was time for God's people to start being concerned with pleasing Him instead of themselves. In their nice houses and prosperous lives, they took pleasure and were glorified. Now it was... God's turn or the Lord's turn. They were all about themselves and they'd forgotten about God. God was not even in their thought pattern. What do I want? What do I need? How am I going to get it? What do I need to do? Who do I need to step on? Or who do I need to cheat? Or who, how much money do I need to make to get what I want? Remember, what is, the, what is the focus here? What I want, what I need. It's not about what I want. It's about what he wants. It's about not what I've done in my life. It's about what he's done in my life. You see, there's a difference there. There's a shift in perspective. Now, now, God was also telling them to do it with the right kind of heart, a heart that wanted to please and glorify God. So why do we do what we do? What is our heart like? What's my heart like? What's your heart like? What is it like? Do we do things in our lives to please God? I'm not saying you don't. I'm not saying that you do. I'm just saying examine ourselves and look why do we do what we do do we do it to please ourselves or we do it to please god do we do it to look like we do something do we do it to look spiritual what's the bible say about that jesus said remember he said don't fast and disfigure your faces and don't do this and don't do that because if you do and people say and people see you and say you're fasting then you've got your reward But do it in secret, meaning perspective. I want people to remember this. I want to look like, and they say, well, what do you do? I'm fasting for the Lord. Oh, you're so spiritual. You have your reward then. But if we fast in secret and we just pray and we don't draw attention to ourselves or to what we're doing, God then can bless us God then can bless us. Amen. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. They obeyed God. So God had got to a place, just like we talked about. We didn't go through Jonah, but we know the story of Jonah. The prophet spoke the words of God. They were ready to receive it. The word of God spoke to their hearts. They changed their ways, and they received it. Very important to understand. They received the word of God. If God speaks to you or I, you need to start, stop, or change something. That's essentially what's going on here. The prophet's basically saying you need to change something. And they responded in, in humility and in turning to God. God blessed them. So if we do the same, don't we think that God will bless us? God will bless us, Amen. Obedience had to begin with leadership. This wasn't a sermon just for the people, but also the highest leaders among God's people. Just like in Jonah. Where did it start? Where did the repentance start? It started with the king. The king sat in sackcloth and ashes, and he called for a national repentance or a, or a citywide repentance or whatever you want to call it started with him. It starts with leadership. Just like in any nation. If we want to see God move in this nation, it's got to start with the leadership. It starts with us, but the leadership must follow and be the leaders that they are to lead the rest of the country to follow God. Amen? The voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet. The voice of God was expressed through the words of Haggai. This is the principle of the inspiration of the scripture in action. God literally speaks, but through a man's words. God speaks through his people. For the word of God is not distinguished from the words of the prophet. As though the prophet had had added anything to his own. In pouring out both, Haggai is distinguishing between the author of the truth and the messenger of the truth. So he was not adding anything; he was repeating the Lord's words, and he was making the distinction between God and himself. Last part of the chapter, 13 to the end of the chapter. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke the message of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came And worked on the house of the Lord, their Lord, their Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. God was there to encourage them and to strengthen them for his work. He always empowers and encourages us to do what he commands. There's an old saying that we used to say in the church when I was first saved, God equips those whom he calls. So if, he, if he's encouraging you to do something, some kind of ministry, whatever it might be, and you think, well, I can't do that because I'm not, I'm not, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to share my faith. I don't know how to witness. God equips those whom he calls. So God will show you if you ask. God will talk to you if you ask. He was equipping those around there to finish the rebuilding of the temple. So the Lord stirred up the, stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. God was there to encourage that. Let's see. Would to God that for such a stirring of the spirit among his people today. This stirring begins with the leadership Zerubbabel and Joshua and extends to the people. So the leadership, what do you need for a good leader? What do you need for a good leader in the church? And if you want to accomplish something, you have to have a leader with vision. This is where we're going. This is what God says. And if you're in a secular job, we want to increase profits by 35%, 50%. Here's how we're going to do it. And you, have to be able to, you have to be able to express that vision so that people can understand it and grasp it themselves and grab it and run with it. That's what happened here in this particular passage. Haggai had expressed the vision. it got a hold of Zerubbabel and Joshua and they took off with it. And along with them, because they were the leaders, the people. So how does that work today? God is the ultimate person in our life right now. He is giving vision of what he wants his church to be. And it is up to the pastors to catch hold of that vision and cast that vision to the people. So the people can grasp it and run with it. That's all basically happened here. Zerubbabel and Joshua caught the vision of God through the voice of Haggai. And they encouraged the people to rebuild the temple with vision. The stirring of the Spirit didn't come and go just as a spiritual experience experienced. The, spirit, the stirring of the Spirit flourished into the stirring of the work. So it wasn't just a emotional feeling. It wasn't just an experience that was emotional, but it was something that was spiritual that stirred them to finish the work. They saw something, they saw a vision, and they wanted to be they they wanted to finish it. The vision had been cast correctly. Of course it has. God's the one that did it. But they caught the vision. God opened their eyes to see. Would to God that we would want our eyes to be open to see the vision that he wants for our lives as individuals and as a collective group. I believe that God is not finished with us. I believe that God has plans for our church. But we from pulpit to the pew, must yield our eyes to the Spirit of God. We must yield our faith to the Spirit of God and yield our wills to the Spirit of God. And God will move on us and his people for his glory and his grace. We look around and say, oh, we're 10 people. Woe is us for only 10 people out in the middle of nowhere in a cornfield and across from a corn bin and Oh, woe is me, no one's going to want to come here. That is the wrong thinking. God has a plan. God can move here just as well as he can move anywhere else. We have to yield our eyes, yield our spiritual vision to the will of God, to the vision of God, so that we can see God's movement, God's desire in our lives. Amen. So the idea here is this. Here's the homework assignment. First part Are we yielded to God or yielded to self? That's the first part. Who are you yielded to? Second part once we figured out I'm yield to self or I'm yield to God, whichever, you repent, say help me to yield to you or you you rejoice and say thank you God for giving me this ability to yield to you and then you go to the next part which says is my vision, is my spiritual vision yielded to the will and vision of God? And if it is, you say, praise God, I see the vision. If it's not, you say, God, forgive me. Help me to see your vision. Help me to see your purpose. Help me to see your will on our lives. And and if you're doing that anyway, you might as well say, help me to see your vision, your purpose on my life as an individual. Because you might be surprised what God has for you and what God wants you to do. And like I said, if you're scared of what God has for you to do, He will equip those whom He calls if we yield to Him. The question is, will we yield? Will we yield? So that's your assignment for this week and for the rest of your lives. See, a lot of these assignments, they're not just one week deals. They're the rest of our lives. Are we yielded to God? Are we walking with God? Are we doing what He wants us to do? Why do we do what we do? These are things that are lifelong concepts, not weekly concepts. But anyway, with that being said, think on those things. Amen. Think on those things. Let's go before the Lord. Father, we thank you today, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Help us, Father, to yield to you and not yield to self. Help us, Father, to yield our vision to your vision. Help us to yield our wills to your will. Lord, minister to us today. Give us a hunger for your presence. Give us a hunger for your word. Give us, Lord, the ability to differentiate between what your will is and what our will is. And Lord, we thank you for that. And we give you praise. Lord, I pray that you would walk with us this week, that you'd give us a good week this week, that, Lord, you'd give us the opportunity to share our faith. That, Lord, you would, you would be with us and you'd minister through us to others. You'd minister to, to us, to us, and in our, in our shortcomings and our failings. And Lord, we thank you for that. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Stepping Stones of Faith. I pray that you find value in this content. You can also find an audio podcast of this program on all the major podcasting platforms. Just type Stepping Stones of Faith into the podcast search bar. Once again, I'm Pastor Josh. Thank you for joining me today.